Welcome to Tech Leaders Hub, where we interview technical managers to ask them about their winning strategies, lessons learned, and actionable advice for other leaders. I'm your host, Jakub Greitzar. Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome to Tech Leaders Hub. So good to have you here today. My guest today is Alicia Noven, Senior Program Manager at Microsoft. Alicia, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. How about you? I'm doing great. It's really awesome to have you on the show. I've been waiting for this moment for quite a while. I think this is one of the sessions where there was the kind of the longest lead time. We were talking <laughs> about having you on Tech Theater Sub, even when you were at your previous company. Well, uh, I'm glad that the moment is finally upon us. Hmm. Uh, and it very much is, watchers and listeners. So glad to have you here today with us. I wanted to ask you, you know, given the topic that we have to discuss uh, today, you know, we're going to be talking about this systems debt concept, which I do believe kind of came from you uh, <laughs> in a way. So could you tell me who do you hope, uh, who you hope is tuning in? Who do you think, uh, you know, might benefit from listening to this conversation? Yeah. I think um, really anyone who is in a spot, and I, I think this means everybody really, hopefully, um, who is in a spot where they're looking at the work that they're doing and feeling a sense of why is it this difficult, as in it shouldn't be this difficult, as in if I was doing this on my own with a group of friends, maybe we wouldn't have these challenges, whether it's you know red tape or just a process that was created by someone before you that structured in a certain way that is just not working anymore. Um, anyone who is just sensing some kind of feeling of inefficiency, uh, which I, th I think is a very universal feeling. So, so I hope everybody is tuning in. <laughs> uh, but, but I think it's just, uh, I think anyone who is also in a spot where they feel as though they can influence that kind of change and be in a position to shape that change within their team and their organization, um, I hope that they get some stuff out of this. Yeah, so we do hope that everybody who wants to, uh, you know, uh, be more efficient in what they're doing, maybe think makes things not as hard at their organizations is tuning in. But particularly, I think this is uh, relevant to people who actually have some of the power to change the way things are run, right? To mm -hmm. actually tackle some of the high level systems that I do agree with that, Alicia. So it's like um, we've got the topic for today. Uh, but there is this Tech Leaders Hub tradition that, you know, one pet peeve that I have about live streams and podcasts is that they take a little while to get to the point. So I'm trying to fight against that, actually, uh, which is why uh, the first question that I'm going to ask you is actually the traditional Tech Leaders Hub question. I'm collecting answers to this question. I've been collecting it for like a year and a half now. So I wanted to ask you, uh, here it comes. What is your number one tip for tech leaders? Okay, um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna pick apart the question a little bit, and that's gonna be my tip. So, because you said leaders, and and I think that that the more, especially recently in the last few weeks, but really over the last year, the word leader has been something that's been in the back of my mind a whole lot, um, and, and just in terms of what do we mean when we talk about leaders and leadership, um, and I think. You know, if you think about who we call leaders in a professional setting, um, oftentimes that's someone that is in a position of seniority, maybe a manager, and it often kind of conflates that idea of what is a leader versus what is a manager. And um, I was 
weirdly enough, I, like I was thinking back to my old college days this morning and, and I was thinking about something that happened and I realized that it's actually a, a, a weird, um, it's a weird connection to this question of like where the divergence of management and leadership is. And I'll, it's a long story short, the short version of it is, um, you know, it was a group of us, we were all still really young in our early days of, the, of college and we went out to a restaurant and for some reason, a friend um, suddenly just collapsed. He, he either fainted, had a seizure, something. We didn't know what was going on. And of course, you know, we're all 18, 19 years old and just no, no idea. No, no one had planned for something like this. And of course, there's no grownups to help lead the situation. But instantly, one of my friends, um, fantastic guy, he, he stepped in and he started telling us, hey, you go call the emergency uh, medical services. Uh, you you know help him get this blanket on him, turn him this way, do this. He was helping his uh, the, the guy who fainted, the fiance, kind of making sure that she was doing okay, and just really organized everything. And you might think that that's leadership, but that's management, right? That's that's effective management because he gave everyone a task. He knew what need we needed to deliver, and he structured and organized us. But the leadership element that he provided was. If you think about who we were, these 18, 19 year old kids that first time we're away from home, no grownups around, and we're dealing with an emergency situation. And he was providing us that reassurance without it being a fake reassurance that he's telling us everything's going to be okay because we, he had no idea. But he was giving us the space to kind of emotionally process what was happening. He was giving us the ability to kind of mentally understand that things were not maybe not okay, but that we would have a path out of it. Um, and he also created the space for afterwards when everything was kind of settled down and our friend was being taken care of what to do next in terms of, listen, we're at this restaurant. We've already ordered the bills here. Let's finish because we need to make sure we're all like properly fed because it's not going to help anyone if we're not. And he just created that space for us to, to actually think through that. And that, that I think is the big piece of leadership. And, so I, I'm stuck on this thing for, in terms of like my number one tip for leaders is because if, you know, when you read LinkedIn right now, so many people are struggling with either finding their first job or the fact that they've just lost their job. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people will just throw out this idea that right now is the time for leaders and, and leadership is really important, but it's hard to understand what that really means. And I think that there's not really maybe a clear definition, but I think that there's there's two parts to what that word is about. One is that human element, that empathy, that connection to people and not the management piece, but the piece where you recognize that everyone is a human at the end of the day and they're just trying to meet their most basic needs. But then there's the other side of it, which is I think why we're here today, which is about how is how can I provide thought leadership using the experience that I have, using the um, awareness that I have either with the product and the team that I'm with, or just the years of experience that I had with various products, various teams, various organizations, how can I look at what we're doing and say, how can we do this better? What is the thing that is holding us back? How can we make sure that we're delivering value, not just in terms of the product and to our customers, but that everyone who's a part of this feels as though they've contributed and they feel valued in that way. And so it connects those two thoughts. So the tip really is, I think, just really reflecting on this idea of what does it mean to be a leader? And if you think that it's just being a manager or having a, a lofty big title, it's not that. But if you're not 
owning up or, or taking and challenging the responsibilities that come with having that title of a leader and being a leader, um, that you really should kind of do the work and earn that and do right by the people who would call you that leader. Hopefully that okay. answers it. <laughs> if it does, of course it does. And what I like about it is that it encompasses not just formal leadership, but informal leadership as well. The first element that you mentioned, being human, being empathetic, anybody can do that at any time, mm -hmm. and it always helps. The second, the way I understood it was kind of finding a way or ways to organize a group of people to really unlock the potential that's there. And obviously, you, from, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, sorry. And obviously from the perspective of like a formal leader, when you have the power to make changes, you know, you can do that. But I still think as an informal leader, you can at least point out the potential. What if we do mm -hmm. things this way? What if we do things that way? You can pitch and fight mm -hmm. for a different way to structure work and to structure these teams of people and still make that change happen. And that's still leadership. So that in that sense, the vision that that puts in my mind is really appealing. And I, yeah. I think it's a great tip. I'll be happy to add it to the collection. <laughs> Thank you. I'll just, just to add on to that, you know, one of the things that I always, uh, always stuck out to me is whenever I would have someone who just came out of either a boot camp or college course, and they would say something like, oh, when we were in college, we did it this way, or it was structured in this way, or why is it so much harder in this way? And it was, you know, the, you can kind of, hand wave and say, oh, well, that works in college, but it doesn't work here or, or things like that. But at the heart of it is the fact that what they're talking about is the purity of the way that they have done things without the challenges that we've put upon it, like the bureaucracy that we put on it or the red tape or the additional st steps and processes that slow things down. And I say slow things down in a weird way because I believe that often it's important to slow down and reflect and think that you're think about what you're doing to make sure you're doing it the right way. But I don't think you should slow things down in the sense of creating or impeding productivity and effectiveness uh, by having things that are ultimately not adding value. And so yeah. I think anyone is in that position of being in that informal leader, whether you're a junior or a senior or the CEO, to look at things and say, are we slowing things down to produce something that is valuable or are we slowing things down because this is just how it is and we become complacent and we don't want to change it. Yeah. Or sometimes it might be lack of trust, right? We're slowing things down because every single thing needs every single stamp, right? From every single <laughs> yeah. person. Uh, but anyway, uh, that might be part of what we discussed might not be. So thanks for answering the number one tip question. So now, uh, just before we get into kind of the main topic of the conversation, then just before we explain systems debt, et cetera, I wanted to focus a little bit more on you, to be honest, kind of, uh, sure. you know, what should people know about you in particular? You know, when I think about your presence on LinkedIn, what really stands out is how much content you're sharing, you know, helping people get hired, you know, how much great advice you're sharing with these nice comics in there too. Uh, you know, I really like this little avatar you've got of yourself, <laughs> I, I assume. Uh, so, you know, can you say a little bit about what should people know about you going into this conversation, how this connects to what we're going to talk about? Sure. Um... So I, I started, I, you know, left college and finished college in 2005, 2000, yeah, 2005 or six, one of the, one of the, one of those years. Um, and, uh, and when I, so I graduated with a, a physics and philosophy degree and, uh, 
I, I always knew I wanted to work in computers. And if you've read almost anything that I posted, it's often talking about like the things that I did when I was 12, 13, 14, and like just the fun coding projects that I did um, because I, I loved coding. Um, and, and the weird challenge that I was facing was the fact that here I was and I had this weird degree, double major, but it wasn't computer science. And I was having a very hard time finding a job. Um, I came from a good school out of Canada. And, you know, you would think that that is in a lot of ways enough of a way to get your foot in the door. But time and time again, I was facing people saying, oh, well, we want a computer science degree. Um, you have great experience. I see all those websites and things that you've built. It's really cool. But, you know, you don't have the CS degree. And it was just this thing that kept on hitting against and couldn't break through. Um, and then someone basically took a, a chance on me and uh, I'm forever indebted to them. And I, I'm still happy that I'm still connected with them. And every once in a while we, we touch base. Um, but then the next job, I faced the same challenges. Oh, well, you had that one job, but you don't have a CS degree. And then the same thing oh. until, until it was about my third job where I now had enough clout on my resume to, to kind of let that stand on its own. And the point I'm trying to make is that I wouldn't have made it to where I got by that third and fourth job if it wasn't for people who didn't just look at what I was on paper, but looked at me as what I could contribute, my personality, what I wanted to actually achieve and accomplish. And it, I mean, you know, it, it ties back to what leadership what we were just talking about, right? It's like that, that human connection uh, to what we're trying to achieve. So long story short is that I've since uh, ever since I was in a spot where I could start paying that forward and creating an opportunity for someone who is not otherwise getting it. Um, I mean, selfishly, I could say that it allowed me to tap into talent that was just getting ignored. So it helped me out as I was hiring. But but the, the reality is, was that was not entirely just a selfish uh, motivation that um, I've, I am for like, if one day I'm sitting on a dock, uh, looking out onto the water and reflecting on the years uh, that I've had in my professional life, the things that I think I'll enjoy and appreciate the most were the times when someone, for whatever reason, they didn't finish college or they couldn't afford to finish college or go to college or they came out of a boot camp because they just did a big thing and they were struggling, whatever it might be. The fact that I I was in a spot where I could see past their challenges and open a door to them, uh, that's those are the things that I I mean it, I I can name all the people um, and I I love them all because uh, it's not the fact that I did that for them it was just that I was a part of it with them and I was able to see beyond just myself how they then kind of grew and evolved and how their careers changed and how it impacted their lives and the families that they started building i mean that's yeah, yeah. it's just an incredibly humbling thing to be a part of that and so if you're wondering why there's so many posts and what the motivation is it's it's just always that it's just to to see if i could yeah. do that for some one other person yeah i feel that very strongly uh i do not have your track record not at all but you know within our team we often took a chance on juniors that didn't have, for example, marketing experience. And, you know, in my case, of course, it's marketing and seeing people progress from junior to, uh, you know, regular and then becoming team leads, et cetera. 
and you know becoming so knowledgeable in in, in marketing in, in this case or you know moving on to other companies and you know becoming seniors there and just having a great career and, and being the launch pad for this feels great feels mm -hmm. awesome yeah okay uh so so thank you for sharing all of that i think more of kind of your background might emerge as we get into the topic, but I do not want to get keep people waiting anymore. Let's try and kind of start tackling uh, the, the topic that we have at hand. And by the way, watchers and listeners, do remember at any point, if you have any sort of question for Alicia, we're taking questions as we go. There is not a Q&A at the end, so just ask your questions as we go. Thank you. Now, uh, because we're tackling something that I, I guess we are kind of introducing here, I know it got introduced yeah first through your Medium article, uh, I suppose I'm going to go with the classic way of asking you for a definition then. Uh, you know, what is systems debt and why did you decide to write about it? Sure. So I'll start with what people, in, especially in technology, most often uh, talk about, which is technical debt. And so if you think about technical debt, it's anytime you take a shortcut um, in your code or in your architecture, um, in building something, and you fully know that it's not the right way or the best way of doing something, but it's the fast way. And it's an acceptable uh, way of doing things as long as later on you pay down your debt. Um, yeah. And the challenge and the ongoing joke is that no one really ever does pay down their debt. And that's how, if you've ever looked at your system and it's starting to become more brittle. It's hard to change. It's hard to update. Uh, if it needs to pivot, it becomes very difficult. If you want to change one part of the tech stack, any of that stuff, always the challenges always point back to the technical debt. And it's important first to kind of quickly note that debt isn't inherently evil. It's not a bad thing, right? We, we take on debt of all kinds all the time because it's an enabler, right? You can, uh, it's easier for me to take on debt um, when I'm buying a car so that I don't have to spend, you know, however much they cost these days uh, than if I had to, you know, if I could spread that amount over time. And so that debt is valuable as long as I'm doing my part of paying down that debt, because if I don't, they come and take my car away. And so systems debt is taking that idea of technical debt and there's other forms of debt too. There's process debt, uh, architectural and design debt. But the simple way to, to describe systems debt is if I were to take all those forms of debt and put it under an umbrella to say, what are the things that cause us to take on any kind of debt or have to evaluate whether or not we want to take on some debt right now? I don't think it's purely just uh, when someone's looking at a, a technical problem and they're, they're deciding, do we build this the right way? Do we refactor the code or do we just do the shortcut right now? I think if you were to trace that backwards, you would go back up to, there's actually a problem in the system, not purely just technology. It wasn't just that the software engineers had to face the shortcut. It was somewhere along the, in the, in the product pipeline and maybe the sales pipeline and maybe the vision and maybe the way the team was structured, something about the overall system, the organization, that could be improved upon. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily, again, it's bad. It's just that the debt is there. And so how are you going to pay off that debt in terms of the system that caused the software team to then take on technical debt? And so looking yeah. at the whole system holistically is, is kind of what the idea is. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love that because it kind of goes beyond just tech debt and it looks at kind of the reasons, you know, the kind of the, the origin of that debt. I just wanted to take a moment because we got comments rolling in. Love it. <laughs> and a TC Gill, I suppose is the way to pronounce that. And I do believe the rest of that is a title. It says it takes a lot of discipline to pay down that debt. And he likes the idea that of knowing what debt to, to pay off. I suppose that is the challenge of what mm -hmm. debt to pay off and, and when, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, going a little bit deeper into this then. Oh, okay. Sorry. Another comment. Just going <laughs> to highlight it. And yes, I agree. There are different types of debt. Love how you mentioned the various kinds. Thank you for the comments. Keep them coming. So uh, I wanted to follow up on that by asking... Uh, Maybe it would be useful to mention like a few more specific examples of, of systems that, you know, how does it actually manifest? You mentioned something, it might be something in the sales process, but could you give like one or two examples of, you know, practically speaking, how this might manifest so that people know what kind of situations we're, we're specifically talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about a startup company because uh, I have lots of experience in the startup world and... Um, I think it's it's you often see a lot of these challenges when you're in the startup mode, um, which is you know when you're when you're almost structured paycheck to paycheck because it's based on your how many customers you have or clients that you have. If you're a, a B2B type organization, um, you end up having to take on a lot of different customers or clients or pivoting your project or product in different ways just to make sure you can pay your bills. You know, you might have your two core clients that align to the vision, but there's that third client that's come along that doesn't quite fit the mold, but they will help pay the bills and they will help cover and, and de-risk things. And it's, I by no means want to say that that's wrong and you should never take on those customers. But again, it's that debt, right? Do you take on that debt and pay it down later? And how are you going to pay it down later? What is the cost of taking on this customer? Uh, even though they're going to help us in the short term, eventually they are going to be in a spot where it's going to become more challenging for us. Now, if you take that customer, or excuse me, if you take that startup and you expand it and you say, okay, this startup's been around for five, six years now, and they have their core customers and the core customers have grown, but the highest paying customer is that initial third customer that was completely tangential to the vision and didn't really fit into that mold. When do you start saying we need to either pivot because there's obviously a business there that we've not identified and tapped into and we have more debt by carrying on this initial vision or how do we start either splitting or uh, firing the customer, if you will. But at what point do you start evaluating that, that question? That's one example. But then there's plenty of other examples where, you know, as, as a manager, um, when you bring on people and you structure your teams and you look at the types of work that they take on and you start evaluating what is where, where is my work going to? If I have a really fundamental issue that I need to have resolved or, oh, we have a new challenge that's going to be fun and exciting, who am I going to give that to? And who do I have set up to be my R&D team? Where does my where do the, does the biggest risk lay within the team so that if someone does leave, uh, if someone does, uh, if something in the team structurally changes, how, how is that impact going to be felt? 
Um, where's the you know so so-called tribal knowledge live, and how do we take that information out of people's heads and put it to where the work becomes easier? And and I think at, at the end of the day, that's what all of this is about: is how do we make the work easier? Yeah. Hopefully, that is a little uh, more specific. <laughs> Well, of course, that is more specific, and I can, you know, even even brings brings to mind some of my decisions that I'm looking at now. I'm thinking, oh, I accrued some systems debt there. For example, you know, introducing, uh, you know, risk in the sense of there's a particular type of work that only one person can do, and if that person leaves, you know, mm -hmm. if they leave, if they were to leave suddenly, for example, there would it would be very hard to pick up the pieces. You would almost have to rebuild the process from the from the ground up and it's not just about you know having access to, to the right tools but it's like you said it's about this tribal knowledge i do feel like from the two mm, examples that you mentioned i would rather focus on the second because i think you know taking on clients um and you know kind of leading a startup might not be the context of everybody on the call but these decisions about how to structure things structure teams uh structure the work i think a lot of people can can sympathize with. So I would love to dig a little bit more deeper yeah. into that. So let's say you are in this kind of situation. I suppose, you know, the, the question that obviously comes to mind is how do you start paying that off? You know, I read your post about this, so I kind of know what's coming. And I just wanted to give you a kind of a, an avenue yeah. to, to explore that, right? Because it, I think the, the ideas there are, are very, very valid. So we've got this problem. Yeah. Uh, how do you start tackling this? So Let's start with let's start with this point that there's not necessarily uh, a one size fits all answer. I think mm -hmm. if you look at let's let's take agile for example. So agile is a set of paradigms, and a lot of different companies talk about how they are agile. And and then there's the joke about oh we're not quite agile but we're agile hybrid or you know we say we are but here's where we're not. Or or they try to say you know they try to evaluate and say well how how do we need to be agile? Like, what are, the, what are the steps? What do I need to do to show that? But if you really dig deep into the principles behind agile and, and the patterns, it's not necessarily a set of process steps. It's about what you focus on and what you highlight. The fact that you put the emphasis on delivering value and understanding that value is what the customer is looking to do and that you iterate on that and that you don't put all of your time and effort into the design work, but that you try to get something out into the world so that you can test and then iterate upon that. So it's a lot more about how you're thinking about it. And so same thing goes with, with uh, evaluating systems debt is that there's a lot of different ways where you can tackle it. And these are really just suggestions and thoughts that I have, but I think that there's equally, anyone can is free to, challenge them or present other ideas because I think it's important to be highly collaborative in this sense. And everyone's challenges are going to be different from one company or one team to the next. But the the probably the the specifics that I think would probably be universal across teams are really things that um, you can measure easily. Like how long does a typical team member stay on the team? And what is their overall satisfaction before they start to show signs that they are probably going to leave? Um, what is our cost for onboarding? What is our cost for offboarding? What is our cost for hiring? Those are those are some standard things. But the things that when when you're the manager and you don't necessarily have insights into those specific things, looking at things like 
how long does it take before someone is actually providing value on the team? And what I mean by that is there's always that training period and it might be one month. It might be six months. It might be two weeks, but obviously you want that to be shortened. Um, but then other pieces like looking at the, the core members of the team and their output and what they are able to achieve. I want to be careful here because when, excuse me, especially with developers, whenever you start talking about metrics, you know, all of a sudden feels like you're in this factory where you're measured against this productivity. And if you're not meeting that number that someone has set, that your job is on the line. And it's not about that at all. And it shouldn't be. And if that's your, if someone is thinking that that's the end goal, they completely misunderstand what systems debt and systems theory is all about. The idea is simply that if someone, uh, let's, let's just arbitrarily say, like if someone delivers uh, 20 story points per sprint, or they they resolve 30 bugs per month, whatever it might be. That number, 30, is not objectively good or bad. It's a number. And the question for you is not, is that person doing their job or is they are they not doing their job? But is there a reason for why that number is 30 and could not be 40? Or what would cause that number to dip down to 25 to 20? And that's where you start to find the, the causes, I think, for systems debt. Um, I like to look at things that cause people to step away from their work and get or where they express frustration, right? Where the things are that you can clearly see that they need to step away because something's not working right. And those are that's where I think you start to see that. So the number is not important in terms of measuring that person's performance, but it's important for you to then start evaluating what what are the drivers for that number being what it is? And if I wanted to take that from 30 to 35, how could I do that? Where are the, where are the gaps or where are the challenges? Right. Yeah. You know, thinking of it all in terms of a system, I, I think, you know, what I'm getting from this is you have to look at, you know, you, you don't look at any event in isolation, but you look at all of the factors influencing that event, why it's 30 and not a different number. And also, I think what a lot of people might ignore is that if we increase to, to 35, what are the other kind of knock-on effects of mm -hmm. that? Because exactly. when you're yeah. starting to play around with the system, it's all interconnected, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe, I'm not, I, I mean, I would be hard pressed to give a concrete example, but maybe resolving more bugs might cause actually problems somewhere down the line. Yeah. If there's anything, you know. If no, you're, you're, you're exactly right. And I think, I think that's, that's exactly, and that's why that's why I, I should have stressed more on the fact that that number thirty is not again objectively good or bad because it could be thirty and thirty could be perfect, and it's it's almost like a balancing act where if you tweak it one way or another, it becomes dangerous. And th there's there's a quote that I absolutely love, which is it simply just says that saying yes to one thing means saying no to a thousand other, and. It's, it enables you, when you think in that way, to think, okay, maybe saying yes isn't always the best approach because what am I saying no to? What am I taking off the table by allocating resources and time and work and energy and efficiency? And, you know, maybe maybe I do need to make that number 30, bring it up to 40, but I'm going to run the risk of really, really upsetting my team if all they ever do is focus on bugs and they never actually have that sense of gratification. Conversely, 
Some people want to actually tackle certain bugs in the system that they know have been there for forever and they just don't have the time, right? So there's not really one answer to it, but the question is, is purely just about the debt that's there and what, why is it there? What is preventing it from being resolved and, and how do you want to resolve it? And what potential debt do you take on in the future by doing that? Yeah, exa exactly. And I do want to explore that a little bit more, but I do see that we have a few more comments coming in. I'm going to do them out of order because one of them is a question and one of them is just a, a comic of support. <laughs> sure. We do have these every once in a while. Uh, ah, my French, non-existent, but Guillaume, I assume, is, I'm sorry about the name, is saying, I have no idea what paying off systems debt is, but I want to lurk in support if that's okay. Great to see you, Alicia. Uh, so it might be somebody <laughs> that you know. Uh, thank you for joining Tech Peter's Hub today. And the next one is a question, though, and it's from TC... Gil, Jill, I am so sorry, uh, you know, uh, if I'm mispronouncing. But the question is about risk registers, which I will admit I am not familiar with. Maybe you are. Anyway, the question, to read it out loud for the people listening, do you put tech slash system debt into risk registers? Uh, how would you address that? Let me, yeah, let, let, me, let me just keep it general because I think, I think it's important with these types of Topics and I mean it actually ties back to what Guillaume is, is getting at is that not, not having an idea of what systems debt is doesn't mean that you can't be a part of that actual conversation. Um, huh. That that it is actually I think very important to tap into that sense that everyone is feeling. And so let me let's let's just take a quick pause and redefine system debt in a way for everybody which is simply going back to what I was saying right at the get-go, which was what's the, what is the thing? Why do we feel like work is going slowly? Why am I not able to be uh, moving this more efficiently? And I want to stress, it's not again about this kind of getting into a workaholic mode where you're on the clock all the time, but more that in the hour that you spend on a task, are you truly getting that hour out or is there something that's slowing it down so that you're not producing to the level that you instinctively feel like you should be um, or in a different situation and environment, you would be able to produce more. And so that's, that's a, I think hopefully a different way of tackling systems debt. but then getting back to the question, you know, before getting into risk registers and everything like that, I think, I think the question is simply just are are leaders and our team members talking about the actual debts that exist at the organizational level, whether that's organization is in the company or organization at the team level um, and talking more specifically about software teams, you know, when you're talking about your retrospectives, um, you know, software teams don't often work with risk registers. They, they just kind of talk more about, the retros and what's working and what's not working. And they have a mm -hmm. bit more of an informal kind of uh, approach to it. And so uh, going into the retro, I, I've heard too often people not wanting to get into issues or bring up issues because they don't think that they can be solved. And those are often the exact types of problems that are what need to be discussed and what need to be solved. Anytime someone says, no one can ever do something about that. Those are the problems that you often want to tap into. Those are usually either the, oh, that's the customer that doesn't align to the vision. And so they're there and they just give us, they pay us a lot of money. So we just have to 
carry them forward continuously and make these concessions around our code base because of that. Um, or it's the, oh, we're never going to be able to do this because it requires the software and we are this type of shop and that's that kind of shop. And so we're never going to be able to use it. There's so many different things that when you look at them at face value, there's reasons why people don't want to take on. Um, and so I know I'm not directly answering around the risk registers piece, but I think it's just, you know, I want to, I want to stray from being too procedural in terms of how things should be evaluated. But I think the simplest way is, is that these are all risks that you take on. And, and I'd, okay. I'd probably leave it at that. Okay. All right. Um, okay. I hope that at least tackles the question that you ask, yeah. uh, asked <laughs> here. Thank you for contributing that. So I wanted to talk a little bit more specifically then about this, uh, this situation. I feel like, okay, we're on this retro. These things are getting, uh, you know, brought up that, you know, there are these problems that are, you know, uh, perceived as impossible to solve. So, you know, assuming you're in a kind of leadership position, maybe listening to this retro, or, you know, you're just at that meeting, how do you start kind of resolving that? You know, how do you, I mean, th there's the issue of identifying these in the first place, right? But it does mm -hmm. seem like they are kind of hidden in these conversations. When you hear something like that, what is the way to to react to that? What is the way to say, to say ah, that's actually part of our system's debt and let's actually start doing something about it? You know, yeah. how would you approach giving a solution here? So, I, I want to be able to give a one-size-fits-all answer. Obviously, I don't think, again, it's going to come down to relationships and your position and what spot you're in to exert some influence and how receptive the ears are to what you have to say. Um, and I think that's really, you know, it, it ties it all together, right? In terms of leadership, in terms of understanding process. And I think it's very, very much about making sure that the whole organization, the whole system is wired in the way to say, everything is on the table in terms of what is slowing us down. And you have mm -hmm. to start there because if you have, for example, let's, let's think of an absurd, but probably not uh, too fictitious of an example of, here comes the, the wide-eyed, bushy-tailed kind of kid out of college, and he's learned all of these academic principles, and he's joined this organization, and he says, why are we doing this the way? Like, I learned that this is completely the opposite of how we should be doing things. And he's only going to be met, he or she will only be met with, that's just that's just how it is. I mean, you're, they're not, they're not going to get the benefit of being listened to critically. And, and, Truthfully, I mean, if everyone sat back and said, let's let's spend all the time evaluating these questions, that would kill productivity as well. Um, because oftentimes there, there are these questions that get challenged and sometimes things are a certain way and sometimes they can be changed and sometimes to change them can be difficult. And that's that's debt that you accept, right? That's the debt, the debt mm. that you live with. But the point, though, is, is where do you find that medium, right? Where do you find that point of being able to entertain those very, very core questions and allow them to improve productivity. I think the best approach, if I were to give a recipe, is to start small and prove that it works. So okay. if you are a junior on a team, or if you are a senior, or if you are a manager, instead of trying to make a large organizational change, which is difficult, right? You have to start locally. And so it could be as small as here is what I did on this one project. 
or here's how I tackled this one bug. I'm a big believer in Kanban. You all wanted to do it using the sprint or excuse me, scrum, but I tackled these, these bugs for this one sprint in a Kanban uh, fashion. And here's the improvements that I can show you. And here's what I can measure that you, that we couldn't with scrum, just small things that allow you to form the foundations that you can then take to the next level. And truthfully, I mean, you might not get the receptive audience that you want, but hopefully yeah. you do. And hopefully that's how you can start enacting those types of changes. Okay. I see. So it sounds like um, you, you mentioned that there it's, it's difficult for the entire issue of systems debt to give like a one size fits all solution. I definitely recognize that it manifests in various different ways. Would you be able to point out like a typical you know, case of systems debt that most organizations probably have? And maybe there's a way to, you know, to talk about how that can be tackled. I mean, from yeah. my personal kind of point of curiosity, I would, I would say it's, it would be interesting to, to maybe tackle that, that issue of, you know, there's only one person who can do this, you know, this, this tribal knowledge that's kind of locked in particular people. But I did want to ask a more general question. So what is a typical case of systems debt, uh, you know, and how that might be addressed? Yeah. So, so let me give an example that, um, a, a real example, and it was one that um, it was, it had, I think, three or four different teams involved. I was only over one team, so I had to exert just influence and provide kind of data to, to support it. But mm -hmm. what I had noticed was the typical challenge that a lot of teams, a lot of software teams will will find themselves in where they constantly feel like they are fighting fires, going from one fire to the next fire to the next fire. And they their priorities are constantly shifting. They're, contact, they're constantly context switching. And if you know anything about the whole idea about context switching is that like, I think it takes about 15 minutes for you to ramp up to when you become productive on something. And so if you have meetings that disrupt that productive time, if you have, uh, messages that come in, they can all disrupt that ability to hit your kind of productivity. And I think that's why people like being remote is that those distractions go down. And I think you can almost say that uh, office life might be a form of, of systems debt, but, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, but, but the point though, is that if you, if you are trying to keep your software team productive, um, how do you reduce those distractions and how do you keep them focused on, on things, on the right things? So let's say you have, and in our case, we had a set of deliverables and they were pretty aggressive, but what we were constantly seeing was that they, our software teams, given the size that we were, um, we couldn't just hire a one team that would de be dedicated to our uptime and another team that's dedicated to, to um, feature development. We were a small shop and we had to do, uh, we had to make do with what we had as our budget. And so what we had to do is look at our process and say, what are the elements of our process that are impacting our ability to actually deliver on the features that will get us out of this hole? Um, mm -hmm. Because these calls, these customer complaints, these bugs that get raised are all tied back to a set of things that we are actively trying to resolve, but we're equally looking at making sure that our software is running and it's the uptime is uh is what it needs to be and, and we're not kind of impacting our, our end customers and their productivity. And when you take a step back and you start looking at, okay, well, what are, what are these calls and what are these types of calls and how are we directing these calls and what are the escalation processes for these calls? Does every call 
that a customer makes, let's let's take an ex a silly example, but if a customer needs their password reset, is that something mm -hmm. that a customer service representative can do or does it go all the way to a developer? Because if it goes to a developer, I mean, you're in trouble right away, right? And so you start kind of dissecting what are these calls and what are the goals um, that can be, or, or yeah, what is a customer goal that can be fulfilled by someone other than a developer and only then create that escalation path so that a major issue does get to a developer. But then what are the processes for us to then tackle that when it comes? It should be painful and it should be an organizational painful thing um, to have to escalate it to the tier three level um, and do an all hands type of situation. Everyone should feel that and everyone should understand the importance of this issue so that someone in a position who knows, okay, I have fully stopped the business to work on this issue, to make the call that says, this is worth an issue pursuing, or no, if we pursue this issue, we are going to impact our productivity and we need to just deal with that and let it be what it is. And there are those issues. They, they do come up. You get bugs that escalate all the way up. And then someone says, listen, if we have this workaround, let's let them live with this workaround. Let's not distract the development team. Let's not distract the core team. Let's get past this. It'll be pain. There might be some customer attrition, but we'll get out of this by delivering a better product in the end. Mm -hmm. So when you create that full end-to-end -end of how, what is your intake of these issues and then what is the output of those, you can start escalating it. But the most important part in this whole chain is not the how do I go from step one, two, three, four, five, all the way to 10. It's the feedback loop because you might get from, you know, this issue went from the customer support rep to the technical support rep to then a developer. But how do we ensure that the next time that type of issue comes up, it only goes to the technical support rep and not the developer? And then the next time, how do we make sure that it doesn't get to the technical support rep, but we use the learnings to go so that it can be resolved by the customer support rep? So you're kind of always making your issue resolution smarter and more, more informed and more capable to be resolved at the front line than always trickling down to the developers who are trying to like, you know, dig the way out of the issue. That, does that work? Okay. Yeah, that works. Uh, I have quite a bit to, to add on top of that. First of all, it's fascinating for me that it does come down once again, I would say, for within the context of this show, to creating and closing these feedback loops. Do you know that this is the, the what, if I were to identify the one thing that comes up on Tech Leaders Hub the most, and that's from the very first session onwards, it's create these feedback loops, close the feedback loops, everything else will fall into place. And yeah, that is kind of, I, I in, in my mind, that is the number one uh, kind of type of systems that people do not have these feedback loops. So they don't even have a system to start improving the system, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And you also identified in my mind two very relevant cases of systems that both good and bad, you know, the, you know, the bad systems that is like, if somebody needs to reset the password and it goes to the developer, you've got huge systems that you need to think about that, right? Mm -hmm. That needs to be paid off immediately. On the other hand, if there's a bug that influences a small amount of users and there's a workaround for it, that is systems that, that you could pay down, but honestly, it's probably the acceptable kind, right? The, the, yeah, the, the interest on that, uh, interest on that, that if if you will, is not that high, right? So yeah. I feel like we covered a lot of ground with just with just that one answer. So thank you. And in the meantime, we've got like a whole backlog of comments, so <laughs> should probably get through that uh, a little bit. 
Okay, so first, Guillaume, uh, sorry you had to wait, is contributing, this is great. I was thinking I wouldn't understand this topic, but leading a game development team, yay. This really applies and is inspiring. Looking forward to hearing more, especially how we resolve finding balance between performance and sustainability and the wellness of the team. I feel like a question is hidden within that already. Uh, but Guillaume, I suppose let's start with that, but then Guillaume added another question. So we'll okay. tackle that and then we'll see how much time we actually have left in the session. So let's start with this one. Let, let me uh, the short a short a short answer not the because I think there's other ways but a short answer is looking at the lead time and the cycle time of your development team and look at what is the gap between the lead and the cycle. The lead time says a lot, right? The lead time is from the moment that thing became a task on your your task board. If you're using uh, Scrum or Kanban or whatever, the second that thing became part of the backlog, your lead time clock starts. Your cycle time is when someone actually started working on it. And so the question is, how big of a gap do you have between your lead and your cycle time? Ideally, if you're truly as purely agile as possible, your lead time to cycle time is very, very small because as soon as someone comes up with the idea, um, and it gets vetted, et cetera, et cetera. But as soon as it becomes something that's on your work board, um, it's getting worked on. And that means that you're working as close to real time as possible. And there's not sitting things that are sitting there growing stale. Um, but, but the reality of that is not very practical and it's not very likely that you'll ever get there. But looking at how long it takes for something to actually get worked on is really important because if you think about a feature and I come up with this feature and I, you know, uh, talk to my customers about it and I get their feedback, get their input, and I start putting all the materials together for this to be delivered on. And then um, I put it on the board, but then it's another six months before it gets worked on. I mean, that is a tremendous amount of time in the software world for something to just be sitting there. And in some cases and in some businesses, it might be perfectly fine. But in other cases, the whole world would have moved on. And, and in other cases, it could be critical to your business that if that feature doesn't come out within that week that it gets up on the board, you know, you're the, you might lose out entirely to your, to your competitors. So in terms of actually talking about that balance of performance and sustainability, I, I didn't tackle the wellness because that's a whole other thing. And I think that's that goes back to the human element and making sure that you are doing it right by the people. But but just in terms of actually understanding the performance and sustainability, if you if you trace that down and think about it more in terms of systems and what does that mean in terms of the system, think about and put yourself in the shoes of the developer that can work on something that gets created, you know, two days earlier, right? It means that they are a lot more connected to the product manager. They're a lot more connected to the customers. They have a better understanding of the needs because they're seeing the impact as soon as they produce it. And there are not those other things, those other things in terms of backlog is really large with a lot of other work that is not getting tapped into. There's not a lot of bugs that are constantly burdening the team. There is not a whole lot of uh, manual or difficult types of challenges from an infrastructure perspective to actually get something out and released. So they are a lot more fulfilled in terms of what they're able to produce because now they are a lot closer. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll, I'll give an analogy. It's a terrible 
a terrible practice, but I think it works in terms of an analogy. One of the jobs that I work on in my junior life, um, anytime we made an update to a, a site that had hundreds of thousands of users, there was no source control. I grabbed the file, I would put it on the FTP, and it was in production. There was no test environment, there was nothing. Okay. The test environment was my workspace, and then I'd drag and drop in production. And I was instantly seeing the impact. And it was very, very gratifying. It was incredibly risky. And there was one time when I actually deleted the entire website, and we were down for about 20 minutes. Um, but because I accidentally hit Control A and delete, on the FTP window, not on the, the the text document that I was updating. So that's a whole other story. But the point, though, is, is that my impact was constantly being felt, right? I could delete the entire website or I could produce value almost instantly. And so as, a, as the developer in that position, I was continuously being, I, I continuously felt gratified because I knew the value of my work. It wasn't being held back or, or delayed or impeded by other stuff. And hopefully that tackles okay. those three pieces of performance, sustainability, and wellness. Okay, awesome, awesome, really awesome answer. And Guillaume, I know that you asked another question under that. The way I'm going to do this, though, is I'm going to uh, read Timothy's question yep. first because yours, I think, uh, Guillaume, works great to kind of cap off the session. I can hardly believe it, but we've only got like seven minutes left on the clock. It, just, just in case, are you okay to stay just a few minutes longer after yeah. this? Uh, yeah. Okay, good, good, because we might not be able to fit all of it in, and I would really like to. Okay, so let's go with Tim's questions uh, first, and it's about metrics. Let me read it out. I like to use metrics to help determine priority of addressing debt. For example, what costs the company more? Is it manually to fix it? Is it some workaround or to implement the solution? So what key metrics are you seeing used to manage these items? I re I'm really curious about your answer here. That's a really good question. And, and I think oftentimes like, the cost is is the easiest one, right? And it's the most obvious one. The, the actual getting the real numbers can be the big challenge um, because sometimes the, the costs aren't always these tangible things that we can easily get to. But I do think anytime you can quantify something in some way um, and, and make good inferences and guesses about what the final cost is, that, that that is a very tangible way. The only thing that I think continuously will butt up against cost is something that is a little bit harder to measure. And it's the sense of value. And it's the sense of, um, for lack of a better word, and apologize for repeating myself on this, but that connectedness back to a customer. I read something really interesting um, and it, I was thinking about making it like a blog post, but I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll mention it on this one because I think it's just a fascinating idea, but it was talking about how really good products make us feel less lonely. And if you think about what that means, and, and I'm on, it's a lot to unpack, but the gist of it was if I open a box and I see a whatever, um, and I feel like that product was made for me, I am incredibly loyal to that company all of a sudden because, and I'm probably the best customer for that company because now I've become, you know, what's called delight, right? I've been delighted. Um, I will mm -hmm. go and tell my friends about it. I will feel seen. I will feel as though someone was thinking about me when they set out to design that product. You can bring that back to numbers at the end of the day and, and talk about what the what the financial impact is of having that kind of customer, but it's still a very hard thing to measure. Is this going to delight our customers in that way? 
But when you are able to think in that type of way um, and, and you're able to try to quantify it in some way, I think that that's the other important variable to look at is how are we able to really get to the core of what our customer our end user is trying to do because if they feel seen and if they feel connected and if they feel as though it's not just about using this product, but it's about being understood as a human. Uh, and it sounds cheesy, but I mean, I think if you spend a moment and think about some of the products that we have and some of the products that have been the most successful in the last 10, 15 years, you can all point to always point to a moment where someone said, this is just so much easier. Like I don't have to do this, or I like this because with my other one, I had to do all this other stuff, but this is just, I'm able to do it. And I, I feel happy for it. I love it. And it's, they, they talk in these very gut emotional ways. And I think that's hard to measure. I think there's ways that you can go and measure it, but it's, I think it's hard to get to it. Like us, you can't say that I've delighted this person by seven points or something like that. That's a, that's a difficult thing oh. to do, but that's right. a key. So type. I, I, I think I understand what you're getting at here. I mean, there's a financial cost to a company with certain issues, but it's hard to measure the kind of the cost of failing to delight someone, right? Mm -hmm. Failing to actually bring that feeling of this, because an issue that you might identify, it might not be, you know, in, in immediately perceived as costly, but if you're ruining that feeling of connection to your product that has a cost of its own, that's hard to quantify. At least that's how I kind of read the answer. Yeah, and, and let me let me just add, because it, like, I think if I were uh, cynical and jaded, I would be hearing that and going, yeah, but not all products can do that, right? And that like, I work on this weird product that's a B2B type thing and it's boring product, blah, 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 right? And it's easy to think that way. But then I think if you think about the Nest thermostat, which is boring. It's a thermostat. It sets your heating and cooling. But anyone who has a Nest thermostat will tell you how much they love it. And they will tell you why you should go and buy one. And they will tell you the experience that they have with it. But at the end of the day, it's a thermostat. It's something that just is a part of your home that you are, for the most part, wanting to forget that it's there. And yet you can be delighted by a thermostat. So I would challenge the idea that you can't kind of set that goal of delight as part of the the key metrics that you use when when you're looking at what do we take on and what do we try to implement all right awesome thank you uh, for that answer thank you tim for the question and i suppose with not a lot of time on the clock uh given that you mentioned that you might stay a little bit longer i will read guillaume's question as the last one and then we'll go to the kind of announcements at the end of the session uh, i feel like this it's a nice one to kind of capital off because it's about, you know, when I'm, I'm going to read the question first and add a little bit on top of it. So Guillaume is asking, what is the goal of paying off systems debt? Is it an inspired and productive team? The way I read it is, you know, let's assume we solved these challenges and, you know, we got to the other end uh, of it, you know, so what do we gain at the end of it? Why, you know, in terms of the goal or in terms of the reward of tackling this, what do leaders get at the other end of it that, would make them put systems that higher on their priority list? So, so I'll answer it in terms of the lesson that I learned. Um, because I didn't I didn't go into this with this. I mean, I wish I had the genius uh, ahead of me to, to have known this, but I learned it the hard way, which is that it's going to sound obvious to some, I'm sure, but different people work differently um, and not the same things that 
motivate the same thing that motivates one person is not going to apply to another person. But the common thread that does exist is that everyone wants to have a sense of impact and making their mark on something. And it might sound cheesy uh, to say it that way, but if you look at, and I've had team members that have gone from this super involved, super proactive, the workaholic, I'm going to be working on this till nine o'clock at night because not because you're asking me to, but because I love it so much. And then once I'm done, I'm going to go home and I'm going to build my own stuff because I love coding and it's, you know, that's my world to the types who are, I'm here from this hour to this hour. After that, I do not want a phone call. Um, I am like, I'm here to do this. I do not code on my own time. I do not do technical things on my own time. I'm completely unplugged on my own time. That is my personal time. And I expect that that be respected. And both those people I think are as far on the extremes as you could possibly get. And I've had two people I can think of real people in both of those cases that I've had on my team, but both of them were wired on round one thing, which was when I'm there doing my work, I want to be able to produce something. I don't want to sit there and wait. And if I sit there and feel as though I have nothing to do, I will be unhappy. And anytime someone has had to sit there and not do something, that has been the cause of some type of systems debt issue that was upstream that couldn't get that person to be productive and to be valuable and to be producing something. You know, they, at the end of the day, I think everyone recognizes at a core level that they are there for a paycheck, um, but they want to make sure that they are earning their paycheck. I think getting a paycheck and not doing any work sounds great, but at some point it starts to get a little old. And if you do that, you might find a different way of like, getting a paycheck elsewhere at the same time and just continue to get that um, revenue stream elsewhere uh, in the background. But the point is, I think, is that everyone is still trying to deliver that value, trying to deliver something that is tangible and wanting to feel as though they understand their contribution. And that goes back to what I was talking about in terms of me uploading directly to the FTP. Wildly dangerous, but every single time I copied a file over, I felt that impact and I felt what I was doing and I was seeing the results of it downstream because all of a sudden my you know the, the users on the website were noticing that the web page had changed and there's this new uh, feature that they can go and play around with and and so that was in incredibly gratifying and i know for the, for a fact that those two people on those two extremes they felt the same way when they were in similar positions where they felt like they were delivering value so that's the goal of paying paying down systems debt Awesome. That that puts such a good ties this nice little bow on everything that we uh discussed here. Uh thank you for that. Guillaume did follow up. Actually, before you were done answering with uh thanks for sharing, taking the time to engage with our questions. Tech Leader Sub is for you, y'all. I mean, <laughs> so uh yeah, it's it's our pleasure. Uh and I'm glad that you found the talk enlightening. Unfortunately, it's time to wrap it up. Uh, I'm sad to say we're already a little bit past the usual time, uh, <laughs> but I do want to do a little bit of housekeeping just at the end here. First of all, Alicia, it's been so great having you on the show and, and hearing what you have to, to share here. I feel like we touched upon a lot of different things and everybody could take something uh, of that for themselves and apply it. So with all that kind of out of the way, I wanted to ask if you have any... Mm, announcements for the audience if you need or would like them to follow you follow something someone you care about or you know go somewhere maybe you're hiring or anything else that you would like to share any kind of actions you would like to call them to 
Uh, I, I think the only thing that I would ask anyone to do is is just go help somebody out on LinkedIn. That I I don't want to make it a, a thing about me. Like go and go and uh, see if there's someone on LinkedIn who could use a hand right now. Whether it's advice or reviewing the resume or just hearing what what they're dealing with. Go comment on a post that they've made or just reach out to them and message them and say, hey, this on your profile looks cool to me. I mean, I think the, I, I'm trying to avoid going long-winded here, but I think um, increasingly as we are remote and we're able to be more connected, we're finding ourselves isolated in, in many ways. And so I think, there you go. Yeah, spread the love. I mean, I think I think just just... If you want to put that yellow banner that I have around my uh, LinkedIn profile picture, go ahead and do it. If you, if it's not your thing, don't do it. But but at least just be connected to someone because I think even just a single message to somebody that you don't know um, and to someone you do, do know, let's do that. Someone you know and someone you don't know, message them and just reach out and just connect with them. And I think I think it'll make their day and I think it'll make your day. Awesome. I love that. I love that, especially since I have to tell you the typical answer to that is we're hiring engineers and here's where you can apply. Whoops. <laughs> that is, I mean, given the company you're at, you know, I, I suppose it goes without <laughs> saying. Microsoft hiring software engineers, y'all. I mean, shocking, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, so thank you. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to do some of this for you then. Uh, all of y'all listening, you should go to Alicia's profile on LinkedIn. You should follow him. You should check out his post about the op open to helping frame, which got like over 20,000 reactions. And honestly, is the way I discovered you in the first place. So I'm grateful for that. And if you're curious about systems that and would like it to see it explained in a lot more detail and maybe in a little bit more structured way, uh, on systems debt is a book, sorry, article, but almost book length that uh, Alicia <laughs> wrote on Medium that you should totally check out because it really inspired this conversation. So we can explore this a little bit more there. As for anybody who might be seeing this and wondering who's SDX next and why, why did they organize this, just a, two words about us. We're Europe's largest Python software development company. We have teams of developers, designers, DevOps engineers, machine learning engineers, and a lot more ready to support your project, build your product if you only want us to. Go to stxnext.com for details. It's explained a lot better there uh, than I can explain it here, just in being very much over time in this session. For more Tech Leaders Hub, go to techleadershub.com. The best way to follow us, honestly, and to get informed about future sessions is to follow SDX Next on LinkedIn. And I will tell you, we have two more and what's going to probably be three more Tech Leaders Hub sessions scheduled for next week. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we're going to be streaming. So uh, we hope you will join us there live or you'll you know watch the recording afterwards. It's going to be a little bit of a different time than this one, a little bit earlier. So for you in the US time zone, you might want to just look at the recording for that. And I suppose that's everything that we would like you to, <laughs> to do at, at the end of this. Uh, Alicia, thank you again for being such a, uh, such a great guest here and sharing what you know. Uh, I, special thanks to uh, people in the comments for contrib contributing a lot to the session and getting great insights from Alicia. I really appreciate that. And I suppose if you have something to add, that would be a good time. Otherwise, I'm going to click end broadcast, you know. <laughs> so nothing more. Shall we call it here? Were you asking me? Yeah, I was asking. Oh, oh no, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll just keep going. So you probably want to <laughs> cut me off. <laughs>
Okay. All right. Well, uh, this does tell me we should uh, we should be thinking of Andrew. I still see your comment. Thank you for this. Thank you for watching. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tech Leaders Hub. If you want more advice that will make you a better technical leader, be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Tech Leaders Hub sessions are usually streamed live, giving you the opportunity to get answers to your burning questions directly from our guests. To take part in Tech Leaders Hub Live, follow STX Next on LinkedIn and subscribe to our channel on YouTube. That's S-T-X-N-E-X-T. Last but not least, we invite you to join our community and continue the discussion on Facebook. Just search for Tech Leaders Hub and you'll find our dedicated Facebook group. Once again, thanks for listening. Really glad you could join us. Hope we'll see you in the next one.